Hey folks, so we're releasing this the Tuesday after the election, so Aaron and I couldn't really find a way around not talking about the election, so if you really are just done talking about it, done hearing people's takes on it, people emotionally reacting to it, uh, skip to about an hour three. We'll jump right into the discussion of Fool's Russian if you do that. Thanks. I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch anything but this fucking election news. Hey, Peter. Hey, Aaron. (laughs) Yeah, uh... Hey to all you listeners out there. Uh, if you're not listening, uh, who gives a shit because nothing matters anymore? <laughs> uh, so, so like, if you're out there, great. Uh, we're going to be talking about fucking Fool's Rush In. Uh, yeah, it's a movie. But, it's a, you know, true love is found in the movie, which will never happen again. No, definitely not yeah, between a Mexican and a, and a white guy. Oh, definitely not. That wall's going to be put up and it's going to be right between them. Yeah, uh, Matthew Perry's never going to be able to get to uh, whatever Mexican town he gets to by bus. <laughs> by twin prop. Um, yeah, so... So, yeah, this is... It kind of sucks because... And part of the reason that... Now, now, eventually, if you're listening to this two years in the future, none of this is going to make sense, but... We're actually recording this before we ended up releasing our last episode, uh, and it's for the same reason. It's my fault. I figured we didn't want to release it on Election Day, and uh, I had the day off on Wednesday. I had some family staying with me the weekend. I was like, all right, watch the election. Have a good night. Clinton's going to win. And then the next day, I'm uh, I'm going to finish editing, post that, you know, have a little thing about, like, this is great for your, you know, election hangover. Listen to the soothing voices of Rick and Peter and then my loud, obnoxious uh, thing. Uh, and instead of doing that, um, I spent the entire day staring off into nothing and occasionally spontaneously bawling to myself. So I didn't get the edit done. So I'm, I am going to finish that. But it is kind of weird that the next uh, the next uh, podcast that you get is going to be just us being, we'll say, merry men. Uh, yeah. And and then you're going to hear this one the following few days later that is going to be us existentially uh, defeated and depressed. And yeah. Broken timeline is fitting to our broken hearts, dreams and hearts, dreams, literally everything. Um, future, um, this sense this, of hope. Yeah. And we are doing this because so it, it is a little bit of the show must go on. Like we love doing this show. We know while we don't have thousands of listeners, uh, we do have, you know, a couple hundred listeners that usually tune in every single week. Uh, and we love doing it, but we, we had a funny game planned uh, which is going to be our first game post uh, Spooktober rundown, and right now, anyways, like I don't feel like playing that game. We're still going to talk about the movie. Might not be our longest episode because you know it's it's kind of hard to stay focused on something 
Uh, you know, it's my, my analogy. And I said this the night that the election happened, which was what the only thing, the only thing analogous that I can think of is there was a time when I was like nine that I got in, you know, I got grounded from TV and stuff like that. But one time I was especially bad. Uh, and my parents said, every time you talk back, we're going to take away a day of TV, uh, thinking that I was going to stop at some point. Uh, I did not stop. Um, I, I, at some point, I wasn't even talking back to them. I was just going, eh. It was like I was kind of challenging them to see how far they would go with their punishment. Um, and I ended up with 42 days of no TV, which – and they finally gave up, I should say, and just sent me to my room because they realized I was – they told me this later. They realized I was going to go forever, um, and, <laughs> and which maybe tells you – anytime I tell that to a girl I'm, I'm dating, they get that immediately because I can be very stubborn. Mm-hmm. Um, You're a tantric arguer. Yeah, yeah. I try to delay it as long as possible. <laughs> Uh, and except there's and there's definitely no release. Um, just, so, but so why I'm saying that is that for a nine year old, when your favorite thing to do is to watch movies and TV, and you lose it for almost six weeks, I still remember that feeling of like this omnipresent like boulder that was crushing me. Even when it was over and they did not take back the punishment and they stuck with it. I remember feeling like it was hard to do have like I could be playing with action figures and distracting myself and then it would you know I'd be having fun and then it would occur to me all of a sudden like oh shit but I got that TV thing like a, a month th- that much time when you are that age is just it just feels like something you're trapped under and that is how I feel right now with obviously much greater stakes involved but that's like the only thing I can think of that is analogous to how terrible and how I, I it's like I cannot have fun for a second because it kicks back in of like what is in front of us. And it's terrifying. So in, instead of doing that game, we're, we're going to try to just talk about how we're feeling, uh, what happened. We don't know how else to just go on with the show without having a conversation first. Yeah, processing is important. And we were like, oh, maybe we bump the show from our recording day to, you know, the weekend. I don't think I'm going to feel any better this weekend. And I don't want to have just have a gap in the schedule for no fucking reason. I'd rather just turn on the mic and see what comes out. And uh, you have to process the shit at some point. Otherwise, you're just going to feel terrible forever. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm, you know, this weekend, I'm not going to feel like, oh, I'm over it. You know, something that people have said is kind of comparing it to 9-11 uh, and in how they felt at that moment. Uh, I, you don't have to think this, but I feel like it's worse. Uh, and I feel like it's worse because and, and those are like the two most devastating days of our country. When 9-11 happened, it was an attack against us so at that moment it felt like we were banded together and it was a terrible moment thousands of people died more died later and even though i don't think that obviously we didn't really band together in a long-term positive way and that attack was used for some really shitty stuff it was shocking it was devastating 
you did walk around in a daze for a couple days, but afterwards it was like, fuck those guys. We're, we're, we're Americans and we're going to beat them. And the problem was long-term again, our country took the fuck you guys way too far. Uh, and, and start saying, fuck you other guys that have nothing to do with it. This feels worse because not only did we do it to ourselves, but instead of like immediately knowing the terror that's happened and coming over it, like we have no fucking clue. It's like there's for the next four years, there's just bombs planted all around the United States and you just never know when one's going to go off and cause irreparable harm to huge subsets of people and other people that you know planted those bombs and like i don't mean to to make that seem less like people if they take away the aca like people are gonna die because 22 million people are gonna lose their health care like i don't mean this to seem alarmist but if he does everything that he said he was going to do like this is going to be long term more devastating than the 9-11 was for our country the anticipation i I like don't know if i want to wrap like touch the 9-11 thing just because it it feels so unprecedented in the sense that like by the end of these past eight years i was on such a high oh well the supreme court finally did something about the uh about the gay marriage issue and like that is definitively solved and you know it, the supreme court stood up for on the side of abortion rights and uh you know there's been a few setbacks because of a complete inability to pass legislation in congress but a few miracle a few miracle bills got through and the ACA is one of them and even if you hate the idea of uh, Obamacare. The, the parts of the bill that really have helped people are going to be stripped out as well. The parts of the bill that even people like are going to be stripped out. How? You can't get declined for a pre-existing condition, which, I mean, directly affects my family. Like, my wife has MS. If she loses her job or tries to find another job, and that law is no longer on the book, there is a legitimate risk that she could end up not having health insurance. And then... You are in a debt that you have to pay. Well, I know. I mean, I know how much her medication cost. Like, it's I don't even know if debt's the right word. Like, I don't know how we could afford it. And we do fine. But when you're talking about, like, the shots that you need to take on a monthly basis are in the tens of thousands of range so that she doesn't get a thing in her brain that kills her one day. I don't know. You can be doing comfortably middle class, which and which we are. I'm not saying it's not worse for other people. It's much worse for tons, millions of other people in this country. But I can't afford $10,000 a month on a medication suddenly. The greatest fear that I have is that the pendulum is going to swing so far back that it's, it's we're going to head down this road where only rich, white, straight people get to live uh, a you know undiscriminated against and with a high quality of life i i don't even know where to begin i i'm just like flabbergasted by the, the how many poor people voted for him the fact that like there's a survey that like one fifth of either latinos or hispanics i'm not sure how it was broken down um voted for him 
more Latinos as a percentage voted for him than uh, Barack Obama. Which is baffling on every single level. Because even if you're a successful Latino or a successful Hispanic, however you identify yourself, he still hates you because you're not white. And f- yeah, and I and I should be clear, like, white people are to blame for this. Like, One, Well, yeah, 100%. All, 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 all other minority groups or all other racial groups voted for... Trump as a higher percentage. So even if their percentage went down from Obama, which again, still very surprising to me, white people are the fault. White white men and uh yeah, it seems like even when it came to women, uh the white was higher priority for them than the women if you're talking about what percentage cuz uh yeah, 52% of white women voted for Trump. And I, I've seen plenty of interviews with these women that are just like, he said some stuff before, you know, who hasn't said bad stuff before? And it, it, it's just baffling to me that the other half of the country would be like, you can't talk about sexual assault in a blase way. Like, that's a career killing move. And the other half of women in the country are like, or yeah, they just didn't even hear or they just didn't even hear that news bite somehow, which I do not believe is possible. The, the 30 years that the Republicans have spent priming the American public both to hate Hillary Clinton and to not trust anything the media said made this a very weird election where someone essentially took advantage of that. Like someone was like, you guys don't believe this stuff anyways, so I can lie to your face constantly and be uh, be considered more trustworthy than my opponent. And like something like in PolitiFact, 72% of everything he said, every major statement that he said was deemed false. 72%. Three days before the election, there was that incident where Obama, someone started, a pro-Trump protester showed up at an Obama rally. Obama thanked him for coming and said everyone's voice should be heard. Trump then spent the next three days saying that Obama screamed at that man. Like, there's tape that didn't happen, and he didn't just do it once, but he knew he could do that because no one cared. So, like, in in 2012, we were talking about how Romney would lie more than other candidates and, like, lie when everything was on tape. And we started talking about, like, a post-truth electorate, and I think what happened was... I'm kind of changing thoughts midstream, but I don't think that like Trump did this to the voters. I think that the voters were already at this place. Like anyone who was watching 2012, I remember thinking at the time, like, man, if, it's clear that no one cares how much this guy is lying about stuff that we know is true and even innocuous stuff. Man, if someone wanted to take that to the next level, it could get really crazy. And someone did. And no one cared. It was given to us on a silver platter how much of a monster he was. But because he wasn't Hillary Clinton, half the country thought he was acceptable. Technically, yeah, technically 26% because half somehow saw those two and said, I'm going to sit, I'm going to sit this one out. You guys decide this for me. I have friends that didn't vote and I am, I had a really hard time on November 9th, not just chewing them out. I had a very hard time doing that. And that because I realized it wouldn't do anything, and it's not worth losing more over this election. I didn't. I don't know how to process the anger that I felt the day after at ev- everybody that stood in the way of like the most qualified, competent candidate 
in years. It would also make history that should have been made a long time ago, which I feel like somehow that never got talked about in this election. And it should have been because it's not like like it, it is that is important for our country to not just keep having white men uh, at the highest level of office. It was great that Obama did it. Um, but you know what? We didn't need to go back to another old white guy. Uh, and we had a choice of a one of the most qualified women around, and we didn't take it, and it never really even got mentioned. Like, everyone kind of knew, but I, I don't think there was much historic about it from the media's coverage of it. Obama did, you know, say what you want about where we were at in 2008, but the media did talk about a lot about how, if this happens, electing Barack Obama – it would be historic, and it kind of placed that moment. It, it felt like history was happening at that moment to everyone involved. Even the people that voted against him knew that they were in like a t- moment in time that was going to be talked about 50 years from now. That same level of, holy shit, America is finally doing this, literally was nowhere to be found this election. Nowhere. And I felt like that didn't – I mean, you can – there are so many things that caused this to go this way. And so you can parse out that. You can parse out how the media didn't know how to cover a candidate that was this bad. Uh, you know, you can talk about the people that voted third party. You can talk about how, uh, you know, six million Democrats or five million Democrats that voted in the last election stayed home. You can talk about the 50 percent of people and all that stuff did add up to, you know, all those things would have helped Clinton win. But at the end of the day, there's still 60 million people in this country who saw a literal fascist monster and cast their vote for him. You know, I, I'd said earlier in this election that I was I would I would be ashamed. I knew he was gonna win states. But that if this country cared at all about America and not just my team wins, it's a disgrace if he wins one state. Uh instead he won the most states. It's it's disgraceful. Like I am, I am utterly uh, shamed. I'm utterly scared. I get it. Like I am a I'm a thirty some year old white guy, middle class, and I still have like specific things that I'm terrified about. I'm terrified at the idea of my daughter growing up in this. I'm terrified if, if there's no ACA, what happens to my wife's health insurance if she ever changes jobs? I'm terrified of a potential war with a lunatic at the button. Like I'm, I'm terrified of a huge recession that we lose our jobs and oh, we have a kid to support and we have a mortgage. I'm utterly terrified. And I am probably not one tenth as terrified as millions of immigrants and Muslim and people of color and gay people and LGBTQ people and trans people. And like, I am terrified. I can't even imagine what it must be like for all of those people because Trump never actually directly attacked who I was as a person. And I'm still fucking terrified. I I can't even imagine. And my heart and my tears and everything else goes out to all of you that have it a million times worse than me. It's a game where... To, to steal your bomb analogy, it's a game of anticipating the worst, expecting the worst, and just hoping that the, the damage is lower than our worst possible fears. I, I hope that 
he's incapable he's blocked from doing his his greatest his greatest fantasies for how he can destroy this country and everything that I've come to believe in this country in the past eight years. You can you can see the seedbeds of of hate that he's planted and he has helped grow and water. And now you're seeing this weird normalization of his fascism that's just it's it feels unprecedented in a way that yeah it feels unprecedented and i i the anticipation of of what he's going to do to us and what he's going to do with our most vulnerable citizens are are they needed us and white people men and women both said too fucking bad i'll say this if you i doubt anyone's listening voted for trump maybe someday someone will be and I'm, I'm paraphrasing a couple different thoughts I've heard from the literally thousands of political commentary that I've taken in the last couple days as I scroll through Twitter and Facebook, desperately looking for someone to give me hope. But here's the thing. If you voted for Trump, I don't think that makes you racist necessarily. I don't think it makes you fascist. I don't think it makes you sexist necessarily. You could definitely be those things. A lot of fucking Trump voters are. But you are definitely okay with racism, fascism, and sexism. And you decided that that you were fine with those things to be able to give your middle finger to the system. Not caring that those things are dangerous and hurt people. And you can't tell me that those things aren't present in his campaign. He is. This is not conspiracy theory. He has been about as open and transparent as any candidate has ever been about what he is actually thinking. Um, He is not a politician. He is right about that. He doesn't even know to hide that uh, stuff. And it it level animal. So you can't, you can't tell me that I, Oh, he's not really racist. No, he is. And you know that too. And you decided that you didn't care about those things. And because you want to blow up the system. Well, let me tell you something to blow up the system bomb needs to go off. An explosion needs to go off. That's what a blowing up thing means. And um, and we are going to spend the next four years figuring out how many people are hurt from that explosion that you wanted to set off. This would be like in Snowpiercer. Because this is a movie podcast, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> We're living like, the worst movie of all time. <laughs> this would uh, be like if in Snowpiercer... The uh, the people in the back of the train physically handed over the reins to the people in the front, seeing how and knew exactly how shitty they would live. And I it, there's a there's a sort of weird and then started randomly shooting into the back cars. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's a sort of poison filth that's gone on in this country since its inception. Uh, the people in power have been unwilling to choose self-inspection and choose a progression, like a painful progression. Part of therapy is looking in who you are as a person, breaking down the individual elements of why you act certain ways, how it's hurting you in the end, and why you fall back on those patterns. And the American people chose comfort of a obvious charlatan, an obvious fraud, over any sort of self-inspection 
about why they feel this way about Muslims, why they feel this way about black people, why they feel this way about poor people, even if they are poor. I mean, this is definitely like people have called it a white lash, which is a fun thing to say. But I don't think there's any doubt that there this this is a backlash through the last eight years in a big way. Not just the stuff Obama has done, but the refugees coming into our country and the legalization of gay marriage and like uh, how much progress we've made in the trans community and, and more equality there. Like this is a direct response to because you know what the country I'm not saying that those things shouldn't have happened I'm saying the opposite but from a realistic standpoint the country has moved fucking crazily fast in 2004 half the states had amendments that said that you couldn't even like have a civil union I think you couldn't even like make eye contact for more than three seconds with someone of the same sex sodomy laws are still on the books in plenty of states well they were because they're all overruled now uh, by a supreme court decision from i think 2008 and then the the gay marriage one like that and and national support was you know in the 30s in 2004 12 years later it's like close to 60 percent and you can go down the list with the stuff that that we care about on this podcast especially but you know the the kind of push towards true equality and this this was a i don't think you can make the argument that on some level this wasn't a backlash to that trump promised them a chance to go back to the america that they think they remember that never existed of course and they a lot of voters took it um they they literally were given a choice between the future and the past and they said i felt better here and as much as shit as millennials get for not voting and stuff like that like let's be very clear who caused the most damage here it was people over 50 and hey people over 50 i think you've done enough damage to this world i never want to hear shit about millennials millennials generation x fuck you you goddamn fucking baby boomers who like looked at all of our faces and said, I want to go back to when black people had to use different drinking fountains and voted that way. Like, with all my heart, fuck you. That's been a brewing thing for for years. It's just like people saying, like, let's just wait out these baby boomers dying. But honestly... Well, a lot of them are going to lose their health insurance. <laughs> so yeah, true. maybe we'll, maybe we'll push that forward. Yeah, maybe. And there, and, and, silver lining and, here. And, and you know that. what? Paul, Paul Ryan just said that. You know what? You know, it's 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 hard for me to feel sympathy for the people that voted for Trump right now, and I hope someday I do. But right now, I don't, and I'm sorry that I don't. I know you're supposed to feel sympathy for them as people that were fooled. But Paul Ryan just said 30 minutes ago before we start recording this podcast that he's going to privatize Medicare, which is going to be a fucking disaster. And you guys are going to immediately regret your decision. And I hope you feel really bad about that. Just bet it on the ponies. Yeah, I hope I hope that you wake up tomorrow and read that story and are like, oh, shit, what did we do? Because you should. I feel shame for what we've done. And I didn't like. I, I wish I would have done more. I did no donate. I wish I would have donated more. I wish I would have made more Facebook posts. I was trying to not be as political this year to piss off friends and relatives and stuff like that. Like, I wish I would have canvassed. I wish I would have done a million things more. I live in Illinois, so I most definitely fell back on my, my little liberal bubble. Yeah, me too. I mean, I live in Minneapolis. <laughs> I was on vacation. <laughs> yeah, you were in Puerto Rico. I texted you at 11 p.m. telling you to not come back. Yeah, it was 2, <laughs> 2 a.m. my time-ish. 
And so I was in Puerto Rico. I left, you know, the Saturday before the election. And then our last day was two. Our last day was Wednesday. So Tuesday was supposed to be our like fun. Let's let's drink all day. And then when and then like not even pay attention to the TV. And then then we went back to the hotel room and I was watching the TV and the numbers weren't looking very good for Florida. And I turned on Twitter and proceeded to feel a sort of anxiety that. I don't know. I don't know the last time I felt anything resembling that as an adult. Uh, maybe when I was 16 and uh, was it thought everybody hated me or whatever, you know, that sort of like teenage angst. I, I don't recall ever as an, as an adult feeling the way that I felt when I was like, oh, Florida's going to fuck up this country again. I've, I felt like that in 2004 because, I mean, I was 23. And George Bush was like, you know, I, I was I was doing the George Bush as a fat, you know, you just at that perfect age, like I had my political awakening, realized that Bush was this, you know, terrible president and done all these bad things, all things I still 100 percent believe. Um, but and so it was like, we're going to get him out of here. And all the exit polls were saying that John Kerry was going to win. And like, I watched that in real time. And like my, now the difference is, is that I felt sad and I felt disappointed in our country the next day. I did not feel terrified for me and my family and my neighbors and people I've never met. Like I feel it's the feeling is a million times worse, but watching the election was like, Oh, there's no way we're going to lose this. No way. They're going to vote in for another uh, thing of George W. Bush. And like it, that started to feel that way as soon as the Florida stuff. And then when they were trying to figure out a path to victory in Virginia, which should have been a eight point win. I was like, Oh no, it's happening again. Yeah. The numbers come in. Anyways, I was in Puerto Rico and we went back to the room and we were planning on just like, changing our clothes and going down to the hot tub by the pool and drinking, uh, you know, ignore the thing, ignore the, the numbers, go check them out in the little bar by the pool when, uh, you know, when we're feeling up to it. And then, yeah, we, we just stayed in the room because we were both like grabbed, transfixed by anxiety. Um, my girlfriend had the, the good fortune of falling asleep at some point. Yeah. My wife did too. And she, yeah. And then she, when she woke up, I just told her to go back to bed. I was yeah, just like, don't, I'm not, I'm, I don't want to give you this news. Um, and then she was up and she learned on her own. And uh, then we both just kind of sat there staring at the wall for the next three hours. Actually, she, she fell back to sleep a little bit later. Um, and the whole time I was just drinking. They have these, they have like <laughs> light beer there. That's just like Coors Light or whatever. I had these golden cans called Medaya. We bought like a 12 pack for the room and I was just, I just go crack another one over and over again. And I made this, uh, Aaron, I think you were drinking heavily all night too. Uh, yeah, I never really felt like really dry. Like I bought like a really, like I bought a $70 bottle of whiskey, uh, not thinking I need to save for the global recession. And, uh, and like I was drinking it. Um, Might as well have just smoked a blunt with a hundred dollar bill. Yeah, I know that's gonna be that's gonna be have bought so much water. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, and I yeah I was, but I I I definitely got like mo- like that kind of like tired drunk, but I never was like I wanted to get fun wasted, and the you know the reality and the magnitude of what was going on. It's a good way to sober you up. It was kind of like when you were at a party in college and the cops came. No matter how drunk you were, you had like a half hour where you were like your sober self. Yeah. That's kind of how I felt most of the night. Yeah. I And I kept drinking, but like I, it just never 
it never kicked in the way I wanted it to. I compared it to breakup drunk where you're just drinking and drinking and then you don't notice that anything is wrong until you're a mess basically. Yeah. Like I was just in the hotel room. So like we, we were trying to cheer each other up. Like we ordered room service, uh, dessert and like no, everything just tasted like poison in my mouth. Like it was that sort of anxiety where just everything is, everything is sour. Everything is wrong. And I was trying not to freak out because I didn't want to, like, <laughs> be a dick on our last night of the vacation. But I was just like, both of us were, the, the night was, the, the night was, sur- it became surreal. I think I know what you're saying, that the worst thing to happen from this is that your last day in Puerto Rico was terrible. <laughs> I, loud and clear. I was, what I was trying to do when we were drinking and hanging out, I was like, at least tonight I can, yeah, can you try, maybe have some Try fun. to cut loose, yeah. Yeah, we can we can have some can. fun and and it, so it, it's, it's like trying to cut involved. loose at a funeral. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, at least there's free booze, guys. I, we're gonna all miss dad. Exactly. But let's let's have a party. <laughs> uh, it, it's it sort of reminded me of a lesson that I learned in college, which I think helped me not become an actual alcoholic. Don't drink when you're sad. The, no, I didn't. I've never learned that. Oh, okay, um, that's a good lesson, it's, though. It's don't drink excessively when you're sad. A okay, and B, alcohol can only do so much. Like if you're a little anxious at a party, just like normal, like oh, I want to talk to somebody, like that sort of anxious. A beer or two or three will help. If you're anxious about the future of the country or <laughs> you know um, how you're 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 years long relationship collapsing or how you're you know if you're uh you're if you're gonna be unemployed next month like that sort of stuff booze doesn't help no it doesn't <laughs> you like it does for like i had a bad it, yeah bad day at work it helps it doesn't like it doesn't help with um yeah my dog got run over by a car today <laughs> yeah it's like it's like it can help numb you a little bit but like the anxiety particularly for me the anxiety is still there i probably should have been medicated at some point but that was the only thing that made and all day i was kind of anxious all day but like it's sort of anxious where i was like if she wins i'll feel amazing i like went yeah. running and stuff like i tried to do whatever everything that i know how to do to like let myself off the hook yeah and nothing was taking <laughs> No, I, I get it. Like, I, I was anxious all day. I just wanted to be over. Like, I wanted to, like, I put my kid to bed. I didn't, like, do the best job reading and singing to her as I normally do because I just wanted, it was like, you know, 8 o'clock. I'm like, any minute they're going to call Florida and North Carolina and I can just relax. I took the day off work. Uh, you know, it's going to be a good night. And I will say the the only time in this entire process that I thought that Trump could win, and I swear this is true, is after the cubs won the world series i was like what a weird fucking year that doesn't mean trump's gonna be like i had that was the only time where i spent five minutes seriously contemplating the possibility just because i'm a huge cubs fan and it was just so bizarre i never took it seriously at any point even when he won the primary yeah yeah I, i didn't and so i i think and a lot of people were saying this scott tobias on twitter had a good post about it and it was like it sucks because Every Trump supporter had spent months processing what a, what they would do if Hillary was elected, and I was processing it as I realized it was definitely going to happen. And it was a rough night. I was up all night. I posted probably, uh, you know, randomly 
very hopeful things and we're going to band together followed by like extremely depressed things. It, it, I just, and I still kind of feel that way. Like I, you know, I'm, I'm definitely in my, I am putting on a podcast. Like, I feel like this is a job and I'm pulling it together, but like an hour ago, I was just kind of staring at stuff again and like having trouble focusing. And I'll probably feel like that after we're done recording. Um, and I'll feel really good for a second. Like we're going to fight this bastard. And then I'll feel like all is lost and I'll feel angry at, you know, sometimes the right groups that cause this, sometimes the wrong groups. Um, you know, you, it's it's true what they say about the five stages of grief that it's not like it's not a it's not a straight path. It's you're just kind of feeling all of them at once, or in you're ping ponging around, and yeah, like that. So that night, you know, I like spent hours just crying, and I, I this has never happened to me in my entire life. I woke up and started immediately crying, like. I was barely awake and like tears were streaming down my face and I had to kind of pull it together to take my kid to daycare because she's two, which is something I'm very thankful for because she's not old enough to know what's going on yet. Although if Trump stays there for four years, she will absolutely know who the president is. But right now there's nothing I need to explain, but you also just don't want to go get your kid and like uncontrollably crying. Yeah, that's that's not a pretty picture. No, just because they don't know, they don't like, you know, they don't know why you're crying. It's um, like um, I was in fifth grade, and uh, that's way older than your daughter, obviously. When I was in, I was in fifth grade when nine eleven happened, and that's just old enough that you have no idea how to process death tolls and, and yeah. how horrible stuff is going to be, and, and you know that that shit is going to get much worse. Like nine eleven was like an apocalyptic day for America because we were like, it's going to get much worse. We're going to have land wars in the Middle East. Like that's that's like the next step. Like even if we kill Bin Laden tomorrow, we're still going to have land wars in the Middle East for years, and like we could have more attacks. Like they did this once, they could do it again, and like I uh, I was in fifth grade, and my first reaction to nine eleven, I've told this story before. My first reaction to nine eleven was like, oh, it must have been just a plane crash, and then later in the day. Um, they didn't tell us anything because we were in fifth grade and they were just like, it's, the, I think they just assumed it was our parents' job to do it, which is fine. But they said over the PA, uh, football practice is canceled. Um, you're all going home early. I was uh, in the 75% of the room cheering. Yeah. And the teachers were like trying to hold it together. And, <laughs> and like, that's how kids are. Like kids, oh boy, we're getting ice cream. Like... Well, when I was eighteen, I was uh, a freshman in college. I, I, like I, I don't dad, think I, <laughs> we're getting ice cream. I hope my I hope my dad doesn't. Uh, you know, they're not expecting the dad after you get ice cream is going to be like we're getting divorced. <laughs> like yeah, no, I mean I get it. Like I was eighteen, I was in college. Um, it was my second week in college. Uh, you know, freshman year, and so I'd been out drinking all night and skipped my classes that day. Like because I was sleep. Like I I probably went to bed at like six in the morning. And I, we had, like, an actual answering machine that, like, played the message. And I remember, like, waking up at, like, 11 and a, a message from my mom that, that woke me up saying, Aaron, we've been attacked. And me thinking, what the fuck is my mom talking about? And going back to sleep, thinking that, oh, she's just crazy. And then I didn't wake up to, like, three. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> oh, a, ra- a raccoon attacked her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like what we what do you mean we've been attacked? Who would attack us? And then turned on the TV like this is now, you know, 6 hours after everyone else knows and was like, "Huh? Wh- 
and like so i i was processing it six hours late uh and then my first thought was oh okay well those classes i skipped probably were canceled then (laughs) um because even at 18 it's really hard to process it like the magnitude especially as an 18 year old who shamefully did not like you know my parents kind of taught me that like you know all politicians are the same but they lean towards bush i did too i thought that you know so i wasn't worried that we like a lot of people that like oh my god fucking george w bush is on the job it was like oh good george bush is on the job he's he's the better of these two terrible people but who cares? And so, it you know, and I was in North Dakota, so, like, people were in law. Like, I just, you know, I was sad for the loss of life, but I wasn't processing the magnitude. Um, because 18, in some ways, is just as dumb as a 10-year-old or whatever you were in fifth grade. Like, you, you know, don't have any, you don't have any sense of perspective. Or, like, yeah, or, like, long-term problems or, like, how this affects the world and the world politic. And so, yeah, this, you know, this is, this is tougher. Like, this is like, I have a family, I have a wife, you know, I have dogs and I did kind of, you know, maybe this, this is definitely a white privilege thing where I probably felt like in some respects, like there, there were things that could go wrong in my life, but not a world war and not random street violence and not the stock market, you know, tumbling off the cliff to an unmanageable point or crazy inflation. And all of those things seem like possibilities to me right now. The saddest thing is I have all those real fears and they're not, they're not illegitimate fears. They are real fears. I don't think anyone would deny me, but I, to know that I am in one of the better situations in this country makes me that much scared for everyone else. So I guess this is sort of redirecting anger in a way that's probably not healthy or redirecting the sort of anxiety in a way that maybe not healthy, but what You're I will say. You're jacking off right now. <laughs> yep. <laughs> just, just really whacking it. Not the first time on the show, obviously. No. Um, I mean, we may have done it at the same time and not realized it. It would be totally weird. <laughs> Like that's that's where it's too far. That's probably an episode where we both like a possession episode, maybe like where we both really like the movie. That feels like the like... most offensive way to <laughs> episode to do it. If we do so, it on Rescuers Down Under, though, call, someone call the police. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Guys, I am. Yeah, I'm so sorry. This is going to be our sense of humor the rest of the night. We don't yeah. know what we're doing. Yeah. So the uh, not to redirect anxiety in like a unhealthy way, but I do think that of all the people to blame. Yes, blame the racists, blame the KKK, blame white people who refuse to look at themselves and and try and make any sort of change within themselves, or closed-minded white people who just turned away Hillary because she's a woman or because she's a Democrat, um, or people that lost sense of perspective that, that how big of a monster he is, but we're all to blame to some degree and not just because we didn't canvas enough or we didn't, we didn't give enough money to, to Hillary Clinton because like traditional ads and traditional ground game failed her this time. Yeah. But then kind of, but now, now I'm realizing that like, she didn't even go to Wisconsin once and it's like, wait, what? And they didn't run any ads until the last week of October. There is all this weird stuff that now points to, Oh, that whole strategy may have been bad. Maybe, but 
Sorry. Also, she was getting polls that were pointing. Yeah. Her no. Yeah. No. You're. Yeah. Condescending liberals are to blame as well. I think that we have to. I think if if we're going to ask, we're going to ask the people that voted for Trump to look at themselves. I think that we also have to look at ourselves to some degree. The fact that I was so dismissive of not just Trump but Trump supporters, and that I just wrote them off as dumb fucking rednecks, meant that. All of the issues that I hold so close to me that I, I hold them as non-negotiables, LGBT rights and treating Mexicans like people, treating Muslims like people, um, reproductive rights for women, uh, sexual assault rights for women. I All those things that we hold so dear to us, we can be really blasé when anybody doesn't understand them entirely or when people scoff at the term feminism. Like stuff really grosses us out and we shut down and we, we stop having dialogues. But our job between now and 2018 and 2020 is going to be converting people and making sure that they understand that like no matter what you think of Hillary's plans for how, you know, our foreign investments are, are placed or how you think about Trump's connection to Wall Street people or, you know, how his uh, his um, infrastructure investments are placed. Like, no matter all those sort of economic factors, the least we can do is convince people that gay people are people. The least we can do is convince people that Muslims aren't some evil race that is just set out to destroy us. Like, the way you beat Trump is to take the hate out of these this divisive, insane dichotomy that we have in this country. And yes, Hillary won the popular vote, but that wasn't fucking enough. That was a lot of California and a lot of New York. Can I respectfully, minorly disagree with you right now? I understand this is right now. I hear what you say, and you're right. Like, you should try to to not cut these people out. But I will say right now, uh, like, I went and deleted 50 friends off of Facebook that have that expressed support of Trump the night it happened. And you could say, no, don't do that. They need you now more than ever. They need to show. I, I'm not feeling that right now. And I think I understand that I have a very suspect position. But my feeling right now is that I don't really want I don't really want to have a conversation with someone who thought this was okay. Like I don't I don't want to convince them and I feel like the way that we win in 2018 is to take those 100 million people that didn't vote and make them understand why it's important. I feel like the people that voted for Trump are never going to vote for someone who is I mean I I just I, maybe it's just my general feeling of like I think we'll be able to beat the Republicans in 2018. I think we'll hopefully you know this is this is assuming a certain semblance of the voting rights that stay intact that there's not some serious attacks on the media and like you know we have an autocrat in power who the fuck knows what could happen. I am hoping that none of that comes to pass. So assuming all things being equal, I think we'll beat them in 2018 and in 2020. I think that comes from the people that didn't realize how important this was. And I think the people that voted Trump, if they come around, it's not going to be because we say anything. It's because he does something like guts Medicare or Social Security. And people realize, I, I just, I'm, I'm not, 
I'm not ready to forgive and move forward yet. And it's not even about forgiveness. Like I'm still saying that Trump's supporters un- are wrong. <laughs> I, I'm not willing like, to understand. Like I don't. I don't. I I know what you're saying. I know you're not saying that. Well, we just gotta accept a certain amount of racism so that we. I I know you're not saying that. I know you're not saying that at all. I know none of the people that are advocating for what you're saying is true. And I do believe that us. That me living in a bubble was not helpful to see why people were supporting Trump. But I agree that I need to find more sources that are not um, new sources and t- people to follow on Twitter. While also saying I don't want those people in my life right now, personally, like actual people that I know. And that I have no interest in trying to convince a Trump supporter who saw a year and a half of a daily flood of the worst, like any other presidential candidate would have been out of the race for one of these quote-unquote gaffes, and no one cared. I don't know what conversation to have with them right now. I need to believe that people can get better and that people can – I need I, like I need to believe – it might be a total fucking illusion, but I need to believe that people can get better and that people can change and that – you know, I do believe all that. Without, I just, without violent, without some sort of violent, awful overthrow, I need to believe that hearts and minds can be changed because I have no, I have no other way of of processing this. Well, so I do think that hearts and minds can be changed. I do. I, you know, like so. There's people that don't care that are going to get more engaged. I can't wait until baby boomers are like. I can't just wait till baby boomers are dead. Like that's no, not, no. And I, I mean, but strategy. I, but I felt like this when we reelected Bush and they they gained seats in the Senate and gained seats in the House. Like things will change and they'll go back. And this feels like an exceptional thing. The people, but but in the next year, these Trump supporters are not going to change. How they're going to change is they're going to come to us if they change. Again, I think that. There's, there's a part of me that right now feels like we don't fucking need them. There's 100 million other people that are eligible to vote. There'll be more in two years. There'll be more in four years that will understand the importance of exercising their rights. But they'll change because Trump will do stuff that they're going to go, oh, I didn't know he was really going to deport my friend Carlos. And I didn't know that um, – my grandma's going to lose her health insurance. And then they're going to hopefully have their eyes a little bit opened to the monsters that they put in charge of all this stuff. But I think that I don't I don't think I think, unfortunately, these people heard it for themselves and they're going to have to see it for themselves. And I think some of them will change. So I'm not hopeless but me having contact with them in the next year is not going to do anything. All I can say is that we have to fucking live with each other until Trump manages to piss them off enough. Well, yeah, I mean, like, I, like, I have, I have coworkers that clearly, like, I never heard anyone express outright support of Trump, and maybe that's my... But I heard a lot of people say that, you know, Trump and Clinton were equally bad. And I'm not going to lie, I had a little bit trouble. These are people that I like in general. I had a little trouble talking to them today and just shooting the shit. I felt like I just wanted to get out of that conversation while I, like, faked a human voice and a human character who, like, talks to his coworkers and makes small talk. That's what I – I mean, it's my first day back at work. That's what I felt like today. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be like, I'm not working with you anymore. But I also don't need to, like – 
actively do it right now. Like, you know, um, I'm going to be the same person that I am. I'm not going to go up to someone who supported Trump or tangentially or implicitly or whatever you want to call it, supported Trump and be like, fuck you, you racist. Um, but I also, I also don't have to engage with them more than normal. I mean, I still don't want to go. We have like a separate Christmas with one side of our family and we have cousins from the South that voted for Trump. I know at least three of them did. And I don't, and I like, don't want to go home for that now. Like I don't, I have no interest. Like, and it's not that I think they'll bring anything up because they're like fundamentally decent people and they don't like bringing up political shit at Christmas just to like raise a ruckus. But like, I don't feel like even being in a room with them. And that's something I'm going to have to work on because we've got to fucking live with these people. Yeah. I mean, my mom, like my, I'm having that trouble right now with my own mom who, um, she did not vote for Trump. She never votes for the Republican or the Democrat. But she was saying that she thought that Hillary would be worse than Trump. So if given the choice, while she wasn't oh. voting, she would rather have Trump in there. And, like, I haven't talked to her since the election. And I don't really – like, she didn't even vote for him. She didn't support him. But she thought she, he was the lesser of the two evils. And that that's hard enough for me to like want to have a conversation that doesn't end in how could you even do that like to your own granddaughter that this is the world that you're putting her in like I am I'm angry at her and uh, and I don't know I don't know how to forgive her right now for. For even like it's not like she said it in private. She, you know, she has a for some reasons that I'm not going to get into right now. She has a large contingent of people that follow her on Facebook, and she, you know, made a lot of public posts about it. And I sent her a um, seven paragraph text, essentially saying how disappointed I was in her, um, and that you know we may have not disagreed on anything, but you taught me right from wrong. And I don't think you know what that is anymore. When it, when terrible things start happening, I don't know how to not think of, like, it's selfish and I'm talking about my myself right now. But it's like, when so, the first terrible thing that happens, it's like, you know what? You fucking tacitly supported this. It's tough. I, uh, I have nothing but sympathy for uh, you especially and my sisters who have young young kids one of my sisters has uh, a baby on the way um all three of my siblings uh are also clinton supporters and so the two of them that have kids are very very scared right now and i can't imagine how much more anxiety it would inducing it would be to have kids it is the first it time is. since i've had a kid not thinking that i wish i didn't have it but being envious of people that didn't like and, 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 I don't know if I'll have one in the next four years. Like I don't know when I'll have when I'll have kids now. I said I said that to my brother, um, you know, where I basically said like I we were gonna, at least going to have one more. And it's like I don't know how to do that in the next four years. Like who? What? What world am I bringing this person into? And 
You know, Aaron, you know, I hate giving Aaron Sorkin credit, <laughs> but he did write a beautiful letter. Actually, I like Aaron Sorkin, but he can be a little douchey sometimes. Uh, but he wrote a letter to his daughters, who were much older than my daughter. And it starts with, like... I am, you know, apologizing and saying it is a terif- it is a terrifying feeling to see something horrible in the world and know that you can't protect your kid from it. And that really, like, you know, crystallized. Like, yeah, it is. Like, she's only two. She's not going to know what's going on. But any bad things that happen because of this are going to affect her. It's going to affect her life. Um, you know, there's cl- the climate change stuff that's probably nothing is going to get done on. Like... What world is she going to be in when she's, you know, 40 or 50? A much warmer one. I mean, great for the upper Midwest. Yeah. Um, like, that, those Minnesota summers are just going to be... Very hot. Yeah. And the Minnesota winter is also very hot. <laughs> <laughs> all, all very hot. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I you know I, this is the last thing I'll say. We'll, we'll get on to the movie. It'll probably be a short conversation about the movie. But to be honest, I don't think anyone's going to complain about not too much of an in-depth conversation on Fool's Rush In. But uh, the last thing I'll say. We're not is a that, politics you know, podcast, so we need to at least technically. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think, I think everyone listening, if maybe they've tuned out already, but will understand that this is a pretty uh, – we. We might not talk about politics, but we have a very political viewpoint that we talk about on this show. And I don't know how you don't talk about this. Um, yeah, and you and I have not had a a actual conversation like, conversation about this. We just had no. a few like confused Facebook posts. Uh, so you know, on the climate change thing, though, I had a you know old high school friend from North Dakota who posted a picture of her and her daughter. And it's like 75 and sunny in North Dakota in, in mid-November. Like, what a wonderful day that God has given us. And I just couldn't help but think, like, no man gave you that. Because it's not supposed to be 70 in November in North Dakota. Like, this thing where, like, people, you know, there's an old Robin Williams bit uh, from 2002 that is still so true where people were like, oh, I can't believe it. It's, you know, it's so nice in November. And everyone's like, that's terrible that's bad it's not supposed to be 80 or 90 in february or january if you woke up at three in the morning and the sun was out you wouldn't go oh great more daylight i can get some more stuff done you would freak the fuck out yeah exactly and now now we're fucked my only i guess my final closing point is that i have to believe that uh there are competent people hiding in the hiding behind the cameras that don't want a uh, nuclear war to happen. Um, the one nice thing that Trump has over Bush is that he's not an evangelical Christian, so he doesn't want the end of times to come. Well, and also, I don't think he believes in half the stuff he says. He isn't. Yeah, he's he's not. He's not even a fucking Christian. Like that's not. Yeah, way to go, evangelicals! You elected the first atheist president. Who are the eighteen percent of evangelicals that didn't vote for him? Like, I want to meet those people. Zach. Like, is, is it, is it, did Zach vote several million times? I mean, I um, hope so, because it doesn't matter. He didn't rig it well enough. Yeah, he, he did a shitty job. He should have done more. But I have to hope that, the, like, 18% of evangelicals didn't vote for him. And that's like, yes, statistically, not very much compared to the 82. But, like, that's amazing. Like, yeah, 20% I, of evangelicals, one out of five of them were like, 
no, he's not our he's not our pick. It's still kind of amazing that only one out of five. Like that's that's why people were surprised at the turnout when he first came on the scene. You never thought for the white evangelical vote to coalesce around fucking Donald Trump, and it did in a major way. He, they, he got politically realized. They knew if they hitched their wagon to him, he'd he end might abortion. Help with abortion. And, yeah. yeah, which yeah. to them they're like the person who will you know only further in state abortion or the person who will. God, I wish we had that fucking Supreme Court seat. Fuck. Yeah, I know. Fuck you, Republicans, once again. Um, yeah, thank you for once again breaking and, the system when it doesn't benefit you, you fucking lazy pieces of shit. Yeah, well, and they thankfully they played absolutely no political price for eight years of obstruction and flouting the way that the branches of government are supposed to work. So um, I'm sure they'll totally learn their lesson from this. But I will say, I'll end on a hopeful note, too. Like... I think that this country, again, I, I, f- I haven't felt it to this degree, but I felt the how the fuck did America make this joke, this choice. My dad talks about feeling like, you know, it was the end of the world in 1968 when Richard Nixon was elected and the, the most inspiring among us were getting assassinated left and right and people, all their friends were dying in the Vietnam War, um, you know, and Nixon was like this, you know crook that everyone knew was a crook and then the silent majority came out and voted for him after you know everyone was angry about the civil rights act there was riots in the street like my dad and probably my mom too although i haven't had that conversation with her you know thought that it was going to be the end of the world and thought that things could never get as bad as they were and they turned around and i think that that'll happen again here my concern is what we lose to get there from human lives to our national dignity to rights that we had to safety nets for the least among us. So I think we are going to get out of this. My concern right now is what it takes to get us there. Yeah, I think I think that's a beautiful point, Aaron, that if we can't have hope right now, you know, two days fresh with the news, the least we could have is perspective. But that's will be my call to action. Um, don't get used to this. This is not a normal Republican president. This is people. People got so used to calling people Hitler that they thought it was never a, a fair comparison point. Like, This is someone who has been openly fascist, who has scapegoated minority groups, and has risen to power when everyone thought he was a clown, and and is clearly someone who gets revenge on his enemies. Like, never think that this is normal. Ever. This is not normal. This is a sad day for our country. And we are going to need to never get used to this, so that no one else does it in the near future as well as fight back. And we don't have anything to announce right now, but Peter and I have been talking about ways to do our part on this podcast as well. And we hope to have more information about that in the future, not just talking about it, but actively donating and, and protecting the institutions in this country that are at the most risk over the next four years. Yep, I think that's a I think that's a good way to wrap this up. I'm uh, I, I 
I do you want to talk about fools rush in? Yeah. Okay. Hey, hey the fools certainly rushed in to vote for that that Donald Trump guy. Am I right? <laughs> what a bunch of fools! <laughs> fools. All right. Hey there. Hey. Uh, yeah, so one thing I'll say, and I'll uh, leave this part in. Uh, one, one, one thing I'll say, though, is that if you... We are going to talk about Fool's Rush in now. Uh, if this podcast does last for a long time, and people listen to it 20, 30 years in the future, I imagine this episode is going to be fucking bizarre. Uh, can you imagine if, like, there was a random episode of the Flintstones... From the 60s where Fred and Barney talked about all the lives that they'd lost in Vietnam. And then you're just like, well, that's now on with the bowling alley hijinks and lying to our wives. Uh, sorry, I'm I'm trying to turn on my, my Bantertron 5000 right now. <laughs> it's fair. I mean, again, I'm not I'm not worried about it. I think anyone listening would understand. So, yeah, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll, I'll be fun. It's okay if you're not. You know the thing that that people always say before they're super fun. Yeah, let's let's be fun like right now, <laughs> guys. Everyone like just start being fun. fun. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's just really focus up and be fun. <laughs> okay. Okay. Aaron, uh, I want you to do the five second recap, and I'll do the the ninety. Okay. Uh, <laughs> If it takes you more than thirty seconds to describe this movie, you it just it's only, you you can take ninety seconds, assuming sixty seconds are, are pauses for crying. Um, <laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah. So five second recap: um, guy meets girl, guy knocks up girl, guy ends up with girl, and and one's Mexican. Yeah, girl, girl's that's... Mexican. <laughs> I don't know really. I don't really know how to expand on that. Um, Chandler is a New York. He, he does uh, play Chandler. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't even try to play like someone who's sort sort of like Matthew Perry. He's like, just play Chandler. Just play Chandler. I don't think he has any other characters in them. Like at least Matt LeBlanc played uh, played a, a he played Chandler badass in Lost in Space. Oh yeah, yeah. He was such a badass in that movie. But like at least at least like that was somewhat believable. Like he kind of he vaguely resembles an action badass, and he could say a few quips. He what? played Aaron Sorkin in Studio Sixty. Oh, did he? Well, I mean, basically, I haven't seen Studio Sixty. The first episode's good. The rest is not. I grew up in the era when everyone already knew that Thirty Rock was awesome and Studio Sixty sucked. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, you so grew up. Um, 2006. Yeah, exactly. Uh, 2007, more accurately, because by <laughs> yeah. then everyone had forgotten about Studio 60. Yeah, it was already canceled. It was already canceled. Um, so. Uh, Much like America will be. Yeah, just like America. <laughs> God damn it. I'm, I'm turning on my banter tron right now, okay? I just got to get it warmed up. Um, so, Are you uh, masturbating again? Um, okay, so Chandler <laughs> lives in New York, and he uh, he's like, ah, I want to get the big the big account. 
And then he's, his friend's like, to get the big account, you got to go to Nevada. And then he meets and knocks up Salma Hayek. And then she comes back later while he's working on, on this other account in, in Las Vegas. And he's like, ah, I still want the big account. And she's like, ah, I might get an abortion. He's like, yes. And she's like, no, I'm Catholic. And then uh, he finds out that Salma Hayek, who is Mexican, has a Mexican family. Which is shocking to him. Shocking. How the opposites attract. So the two of them, um, they're like, ah, my work. He's like, ah, my work. And she's like, ah, my family. And I love Las Vegas. And then they like, uh, she's like, she leaves him. And then he's like, no, you can't leave me. I don't want to date the boring waspy girl. And then, and then they, they, um, they forgot that she then says that, that she had an abortion. So then he's like, well, never mind. I'm out E5000. Yeah. That's that's the sort of thing Chandler would say. Yeah, he, he constantly said, "I'm Audi 5000." <laughs> he also sat on chairs backwards at the max. <laughs> All right, I'm I'm a I'm a bounce bro. My Mazda's here. Yeah. <laughs> Later, uh, Gator. Classic, <laughs> classic friends catchphrase. <laughs> so, could you be any more Mexican? Yeah. That, no, that's more close. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Could you have any more brothers? (laughs) So, first off, I did a great 90-second recap. You never finished it. So then she has the kid on on Hoover Dam, which is her special spot, and he's been trying to find her, and they have the kid, and then they uh, get divorced because the divorce fairy clock runs out, and then... They, the ending is that they get married for real. Wait, so I missed that divorce thing. Did he mail off the documents... And then it like yeah, he changed his mind. Yeah, because he, he, he mailed finally off the documents and then changed his mind. Yeah, he mailed off the documents and they had, he had no, no, no. He had six days to contest them, oh, or else the divorce was finalized. Oh, okay, that makes more sense because because the last shot we see of him is he's like looking at him and then he takes his yeah. ring off, but he doesn't like sign the documents and send them to us, give them to a secretary or something. It plays a full song of like. Now I wonder whatever that song is like. Keep on playing. When you do a montage, you're not supposed to play a four minute pop song. Yeah, um, you're supposed to play like a minute of it. Get get a sense. Uh, the yeah, funnest so, minute. Yeah, not the entire song. Like you're doing the worst music video of all time. I want to talk about why because this is my suggestion for the show for nineties. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is a first for us. Yeah, it's a rom com which we've never done before, and part of me was like, let's not shit on this movie too hard because it's our first rom com. But like with how sour our first hour of this show is, uh, probably going to be hard. Yeah, Aaron, why did you why did you bring this this bountiful no. offering when we were talking about? This month, we were really trying to switch it up, but be true to what we were trying to do, which is movies from the 90s that we like that we hadn't seen for a while. Uh, I mentioned this one. Peter had said that he had liked it as well and hadn't seen it in who knows how many years. And it felt like, you know, th- this was a very conscious decision to do a something different. Um, you'll notice kind of we have like an action movie, uh, a kid's movie, a romantic comedy, an animated movie like or an attempt at a kid's movie with Super Mario Brothers that is not a kid's movie. Um, Super Mario Brothers is just its own thing. But yeah. uh, so, you know, this this was a conscious decision to try something different, but also do a movie that we honestly both had fond memories of. And I, I remember saying to people like that I didn't think this was a great movie, but I thought of all of the like cookie cutter 90s type romantic comedies 
that this was one of the best, if not the best. I saw it when it came out. I said that in, you know, high school, college that, you know, it's not great. But say anything that kind of like romantic, you know, there, there's like a higher level or higher echelon of romantic and romantic comedies. This was the best example of like that second tier echelon of let's just make a movie of two people falling in love. And I still kind of liked it. Like there's there's still some funny parts. Um, I think part of that is that I have a lot of I have almost a weak spot for Matthew Perry. Uh, he was always my favorite character on Friends. Oh, you're a terrible person. That explains a lot. Oh, he was not. Who's your favorite character on Friends? I've been told I have Chandler energy, which is uh, kind of offensive. But we'll, we'll, we'll figure see. It out. And I, I got compared to him my entire life, even before I watched the show, too, just in kind of my mannerisms and my sarcasm and a lot of other things. So I uh, and I, you know, Friends premiered when I was 10 uh, and I didn't start watching until I was like 14. So. Uh, so yeah, I always I always really liked Matthew Perry, and it, it probably helped too that so I saw a lot of Matthew Perry movies. I saw Three to Tango, which if we ever want to watch, what I imagine is a crazy offensive movie. Uh, we could watch that. You know, he was in the whole nine yards, which I remember liking. Uh, Serving Sarah, which I watched uh, primarily for Matthew, for, primarily for Bruce Campbell, who's in that movie, uh, but Matthew Perry is the lead as well. So. This was also like the best example of a Matthew Perry movie when they tried to make him a movie star, as they did uh, almost all of the Friends stars for a little bit. Except um, for the Cooge. She was in the opposite of sex, which is probably the best actual movie to come out of that. It's, it's definitely not the pallbearer. Yeah. The comeback was kind of her almost admitting that her career didn't go anywhere. She's definitely the best uh, actor out of all of them. She's the most gifted comedic actor of the bunch, at least. Like, she, most of the time on Friends, like, when something is funny, it's, it's, most of the time on Friends, the joke has to be really, really funny for it to be funny, because the actors can't carry a bad joke. But uh, Lisa Kudrow could carry any terrible joke, especially in the later seasons when what when happened. It was, was only terrible jokes. Well, yeah. Well, <laughs> well what happens with sitcoms? It happens yeah. with High Mary. They get really broad. It happens with every show that you, every sitcom you like, yeah. basically, except for Seinfeld. Maybe Seinfeld yeah. got broader, but it, it almost like gave it a new energy that was different. Um, and it was definitely different those last two seasons after Larry David left, but it was still really funny. But every every sitcom basically becomes a parody of itself at a certain point. Yeah. And that's what happened with How I Met Your Mother. That's what happens with most of these shows. Uh, Lisa Kudrow remained funny even when Phoebe became a parody of Phoebe, which was pretty admirable. Although one thing I do like about the later seasons is if you watch the early seasons, and for no reason, like two years ago, I did a full rewatch of Friends when I was working from home more. It was like the perfect thing to watch in the background. Ryan did that, too. Yeah, and like it's, it's just like easily consumed. Yeah, so I still think the first, like seasons two through five have a lot of good stuff in it. But um, I did like like Ross starts out as like the normal. He's a little neurotic. He's very you know New Yorker. Um, I love that they made him a like he they just made him an insane person. Um, by the end like of the psychotically like insane. psychotic, like has serious problems. Like you could name that show, like the, um, Ross Geller's slow descent into madness. And it would accurately reflect all, all 10 seasons of friends. Um, but they, they make him, he, I think he's the best one that actually besides Phoebe, that when they go into the broad territory, I think that David, uh, not David Duchovny, David Schwimmer <laughs> is a different guy. Um, 
also had trouble. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> later on. Uh, but I think David Trimmer yeah, is a very good ge- aliens. Yeah, I know. Uh, but I think she was a clone. I don't remember what happened there. <laughs> I know they resolved it in the least satisfying way ever. This, oh, by the way, this episode, besides besides the fear of tyranny, it's about 90 sitcoms. Yeah, um, exactly. 90 shows in general. Yeah, so I thought David Trimmer was good. But Matthew Perry was, again, I really liked him. Uh, I, st- I still think that this movie is pleasant. Like, there's worse ways to spend an hour and 50 minutes, which is too long for this movie. But, like, uh, you know, there there were a couple jokes that still made me laugh. Um, Matthew Perry and Selma Hayek have a weird chemistry where they are completely unbelievable at the end and at the beginning. But in the middle, when they're fighting all the time, have, like, a the feeling of, like, a couple that loves each other but has been together a long time, which I thought was really good. And it was nice to see John Tenney, who has been dead now for 15 years. <laughs> no one's ever seen him in anything again. He, But he was, like, in everything from the 90s as, like, a best friend, and they tried to make him a star. Like, the person who played uh, Alex's best friend. Oh, yeah, it's true. And he um, is, like, when is the last time? I did no research because, again, uh, existential dread. But uh, I, I can't remember the last time I've seen him in something. The Wikipedia page is, uh, appropriately enough, just, like... The movie made this much money. <laughs> yeah. Like Nine not, million more. Yeah. I did look up one thing. It's it's one of those Wikipedia pages, which is surprising because this movie is weirdly remembered by people. Um, See, is it? I was surprised that you had seen it and, and had fond memories of it. I don't know. And I mentioned it for the show. Everyone that I know, like I watched it. I've seen it a bunch of times. I've, I've watched it. It gets shown in some Spanish classes, which I just realized is insane because there's like pretty insane. six lines of Spanish in the movie. That's like classic. I don't want to work today. Oh, they say Spanish. Might as well put in a religious studies class. They talk about <laughs> signs and Jesus more than they talk in Spanish. We should have a whole episode about what shit did you watch growing up in, in different classes and how hungover was the teacher that day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, dead man walking in religious cla- religion class in a Catholic high school. It was amazing. I could, I could buy watch, that. But it was amazing to watch the teacher just try and steamroll any of the, the nuance in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> like, the movie is not fucking propaganda. And the no. teacher just like was like, it needs to fit in this box. Yeah. It needs to fit in as I mean, it's better than showing us abortion videos like the other classes we're watching. Well, uh, yeah, and that's what we're covering next week. Yeah, abortion videos. Our our six favorite abortion yeah. videos. Yeah. No, I remember I remember watching those No one in, will get abortions some, again in Donald yeah. Trump's America. No. Well, not not legal ones. <laughs> so this movie has a uh So hold on. So let's in it. Yeah. It does, which is actually kind of surprising for a uh, PG thirteen movie from the nineties. Like they, in, in some ways, like it has it has, of course, its uh, requisite uh, gay panic joke. Uh, just one, surprisingly, uh, which was required legally required of all yeah. movies. They they the compromise of uh, gay people in the nineties was don't ask, don't tell, and but you have to make uh, gay people seem really funny and gross uh, in, in every movie. I'll give I will give the movies one gay panic joke uh, a pass. I will too. It's not because that bad, it's but not. it's it's just funny that it's there. So two guys basically, uh, Matthew Perry and his best bro, John Tenney, John Ken- John Kenny, whatever his name is, Tenney, T E N N, yeah, R I P. 
John Katenny uh, are in a <laughs> are in a closet together. The two are in a closet, like sharing, you know, corporate secrets, best bro secrets. Um, were you also surprised that John Tenney never betrays him? He's got yeah, very, no, they're good. They're good friends the whole way through. Like he's, he's got a smarmy face, doesn't he? Like yeah, he, like he's gonna yeah. steal the account from him or try to sleep with uh, Salma Hayek. I could have sworn that was in the movie, and then it never happened. Um, no, he just was like, "Ooh, look at the bod!" Like he's yeah. into it, but then he you married he respects, the bod? Yeah, he it's respects the sort of thing people said. Yeah, <laughs> constantly, all the time. Yeah, you know how like, decent people say you that? got fifth period with the bod. <laughs> you know how humans talk. Yeah, well, humans talk. Uh, this movie does not know how humans talk. Yeah. Uh, all of the speeches I remembered being romantic are like so written. Yeah, could this movie and, be any more written? Yeah, and delivered as such too. <laughs> like it's like it's like someone. <laughs> the movie speeches are like if someone had had the plot of when Harry met Sally described to them and was like, "I get it. I'm going to do one of those." But it's not quite like the alien version of that, which is like the room. The room is like... Yeah, it's not the alien version. It's just, uh, I don't have a hook. But I'm going to say sentences that could be, like, mixed and matched into any of these speeches. When he's doing the, yesterday my life made sense. And I was, I was happy. And now my life doesn't make sense. And I've never been happier. (laughs) That speech is terrible. The movie at its worst is when it's trying to force itself into that box. Like, if the movie just had sort of, like, hangout energy the whole time, it would be more charming, I think. If it didn't yeah, feel the need well, to, like, just stamp our faces with the message over and over again and, like, really clumsily. Anyways. so and, Yeah, and the lot. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. So, go, jumping back a little bit. The, the, I give the... If we're measuring wokeitude in this movie, um, I give the gay, the, the gay panic joke a pass. Uh, you know, as a straight white dude, uh, it's always weird when we have to decide like how woke something is uh, from this perspective. Because like, I don't think anybody. Is I, I think it's like fair. That. I think it's fair to say that it's still like, oh, you just had to put it in there, didn't you? Oh, but sure. it's not mean spirited to the point that like. Even the Superman 2 one that we reference as being out of nowhere is, which is like, yeah, I'm just, I just married this guy up here. We took so long. Yeah. You're, like, the, this is just like they got they have a little weird moment, but they don't go, oh, no. The, uh, the idea of gay th- is being gross. They're like, it's just the concept of two people because they're like, yeah, he's helping me out. And they, they share a hug. They kind of lean into the moment. They're not repulsed by the idea of... They lean that into they could be gay. Yeah, they lean into a different kind of intimacy where they're like they're like I just needed a hug. Like they're leaning into like they weren't make they weren't it wasn't uh, sexual intimacy. It was it was just friends. It was intimacy, just friends. Yeah, which to me gets a pass just because of the time. Like now, anything resembling a gay panic joke is just like come the fuck on. Unless it's unless the movie is like actively making fun of gay panic jokes. Like if the guys like. Like, yeah, I can't even think of a situation just because the joke is so overplayed. But in this, I give it, yeah, I give it the pass because it's just like it, it, it ends up being kind of sweet in a weird way. Like, yeah, and their friendship does last the whole movie, and there's a reluctance to I, I actually say that I actually am going to give some of the racism a little bit of a pass. It's all well meaning. Well, the only characters that I think are blatantly racist are. Alex's parents, who are supposed to be these very waspy people, 
And they are portrayed as the the idiots. They are portrayed as the buffoons very explicitly in a way that uh, Isabella's parents, who are meeting them, and are not. Like this, you know, the the when he says, like, this isn't a good place for white people, everyone, like, drops their drink and are, their mouths are open. Like, this movie is not trying to get laughs out of the concept of racism, I don't think. But I think it's it's getting laughs out of the concept that these people are so removed from other people that they they are the joke. Yeah, it's it's uh the waspy parents are like the, the jokes that they get are basically like they think that Isabella, which is Salma Hayek, uh, is the maid. Yeah, they think she's the maid and the help, and they think like, oh, she's gonna get fired. And it's funny because like. You're, you watch this movie. It's it's hard to watch any romantic comedy or sitcom with the lens like, hey, why don't you just go s- talk to her? Or, hey, why don't you not say the worst thing in the world? But like, there. The, I want to talk. I want to talk about that later. So but let's, during the scene, I'm like, <laughs> dude, you married Salma Hayek. Like, yeah, you're doing you can, fine. You can tell. Everybody, like you should just like show people pictures of you two together and just be like, yeah, this this person agreed to marry me. Like you married the bot. Yeah, you married the bot, man. Yeah, the racism stuff in this movie like was never specifically bothersome. It just becomes grown worthy sometimes when they're like, let's make this movie a little more Mexican. I I thought it was more the stuff that bothered me wasn't that. It was racist against Mexicans with the fact that, like, Alex Chandler, uh, we'll just say Chandler. I don't know why we're trying to call him Alex, uh, where Chandler was shocked um, that, like, she had dinner with her family and she had these other brothers and she talked to her mom and dad. Like, I think it's easy to say, oh, he was surprised by another culture. But, like, people who aren't Mexican do all those things, too. Yeah, um, I, it was more like dumb in the way that like this is a thirty year old man. Has he not met other people? <laughs> yeah, like he's like, but I guess like his friends, like his fr- his friends back in New York, like that that white, like I don't know, the white waspy lady that's pursuing him the whole movie, which is really pathetic because she doesn't even get like a send off. She's just yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, well, he like, whispers something. You know what? People talk about the lost in translation whisper, but I'll tell you what. I can't believe they're not talking about he, whatever he whispers to that character <laughs> who we don't know her name before going on the helicopter. <laughs> it's got to be way more interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I, so, I'm dead inside. <laughs> <laughs> no one told you life was going to be this way. Seafood makes me sick and I prefer tacos. <laughs> like, <laughs> Goodbye. But Goodbye. it's funny because she just silently nods at him. But whatever she nods at him. She doesn't nod at him like she's heartbroken or she, like any sort of change is registered, really. She's just like, oh. I guess Matthew Perry's not coming on this trip. Like, yeah. maybe maybe I can try and have sex with him later. Um, yeah. But, I mean, still, like, to get back to that, what he's, what he's constantly shocked by, like, he really is shocked by the idea early on when he talks to her. And it's one of the first exchange, because this movie lays down the themes about signs and that they're different, like, from their first conversation, which is really kind of embarrassing. I, I think this movie settles in the middle and then gets... It starts out bad and ends bad 
but gets kind of fun and comfortable in the middle. Um, but but their first conversation is about like you talk to your mom every week, and he is just flabbergasted by this. I'm sorry, I don't care if you're still in the the waspy world. The concept of someone who talks to their mom should not at your age be that like i have literally never even known that was possible yeah i don't know i don't care how detached and busy you are like you must know somebody who's close to their family like yeah or like could could think about the idea as a abstract concept yeah (laughs) this movie sort of brings up an interesting idea which is what is better clumsy representation or non-representation and i think clumsy representation wins every time because you can like refine this movie yeah you can make another these two cultures uh, smashed up against one another and uh then these two people fucked like you could make a sort of movie like this all the time i mean it's basically a romeo and juliet story uh <laughs> Like for five they do minutes, both, they do both die at the end. Yeah, they do both die at the end on the Hoover Dam when um, the when NCR Sal- and the Legion have the battle there at the end. Yeah, of the when, movie. when Salma Hayek does not see him in the dark in the rain and hits Alex, <laughs> killing killing both of them because she <laughs> wasn't be wearing her seatbelt. Would have been a five star movie at that. Um, yeah. but the the wokeitude here. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's it's not subtle, but the fact that it is it is attempting to represent these cultures in a positive way, we still have trouble with just getting Asian dudes into roles in movies, like just getting, uh, you know, Hispanic women into roles where they're not playing a maid or a prostitute. Like we, we still have trouble like that. So like we haven't moved forward so fast that having clumsy representation is, is just as bad as like not having it at all. Well, again, and we always talk about like, where's the movie's heart? 90% of the jokes are about, or at Alex's or his parents' expense. I think this movie could be a lot more mean-spirited if the jokes were more like, look how crazy Mexicans are. Because even when they they do things that are, like, culturally appropriate, like, hey, let's decorate this house, like, the house looks way better than it did. And I don't think you're supposed to laugh at, I mean, I think you're supposed to laugh at, like, the amount of crucifixes around, even though it should be noted the movie does come around on the side that those are important. So, even if you're supposed to laugh at that moment, I suppose you're supposed to not laugh by the end of it. But I think you're supposed to look at Matthew Perry and go, she just did something nice from you and you're disconnecting. And the movie almost says that explicitly later. Um, And I'll also say that one of the biggest laughs of this movie is when he almost bumps into the giant crucifix and says, Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's Uh, a a good that's a good line delivery and a good physical comedy. Probably a smart move for them to make uh, Alex a uh, atheist and make her a uh, hardcore Catholic. Uh, No, he's remember he's Presbyterian, but she's Presbyterian. But you don't care about your faith. Yeah, he says religion is the opiate of the masses, which is like great line. Guys, they're like, let's represent both sides fairly. He'll be a proselytizing douche for like three seconds, and then she'll be incredibly non charmingly bound to her religion. And like, not just her religion, like a weird version of Catholicism that like doesn't let any any data be noise. Like everything <laughs> is a sign. 
<laughs> like yeah, sometimes it sometimes a a little girl named Isabella is just a little girl named Isabella. Well, I in fairness, I think at the end when he finally starts noticing the signs, the signs are laying it on a little thick. Um, even for signs from the Holy Father, our God. God, um, you think, but, you, yeah, you think maybe like uh, Jesus could practice some subtlety and then throw the rest of us a few of those like those, yeah bone. You can't have five. Like, yeah, <laughs> you can't have five obvious signs in a row. Like that was on a car ride. Yeah, yeah those, those signs. Um, basically, like yeah, he burned through them off. So for the rest of his life, he'll never know what to do about he'll, anything. He'll never see a sign again. Also, showing that like he has never met other people. When they first run into each other at the payphone and he overhears her saying to her mom about the concept of uh, signs, like there was no sign. There was no sign that we should be together. He says to her after she gets out of the phone, waiting for a sign, huh? Is that a religious or a cultural belief? What does that mean? That's the first thing he says. Like people say that. You don't need to quiz if like, is this because you're – Catholic, or is it because you're Mexican that you believe that sometimes it's not right to be someone based on the abstract concept of signs? And like, also, how would you know? Yeah, <laughs> like how would she even know? Like, and her answer is basically like, uh, both. Like, that's not yeah. a good. It's not a good question with a good answer. It's not a good icebreaker. It's like, so ex- explain. Yeah, but it really is like, is this because your religion or because of your skin color? God, it is. But weird. again, I think he he really has never again thirty years old. You've never heard someone say, like, I'm watching for the signs or, like, seen it talked about in a movie? Like, that's the part of the movie that I think is super clumsy because it's, like, he has never met anyone that's not an exact clone of him. (laughs) Well, that's how wasps work, right? They reproduce by budding, so everyone... But, like, he's never seen a movie. Yeah, he's never seen a movie. Yeah. Uh, He's never never read a book. (laughs) Yeah. No, he just assumed every book that he read about different cultures was uh, science fiction. Yeah, like, I guess. Imagine um, the far off cultures of Mexico, and he just he just imagines like white people eating lobster tail. Yeah, and why? Yeah, and why this movie? I think though is still kind of can be pleasant. It's those moments at the beginning where they're like trying to force a meet cute, and then force like a breakup to add like stakes to the movie that I think the movie fails miserably at. I think what resonated for me and why I think fondly of this movie, uh, and still, and I still, again, kind of enjoyed watching it again, was when they are just having their cultural clash, and um, you know, Salma Hayek and Matthew Perry are charming actors, and they they pull off the everyday relationship of two people, I think, very well. It's when they're trying to have their big moments that the script doesn't support them, and they fall on their asses. But I think the middle with their little meeting the parents, he goes out with her brothers to go shooting and things go wrong. And the, you know, the the push and pull of them trying to work while he's trying to do this thing and where do we move and all that stuff. Like, I think that has some funny moments in there. I think there's a charming effortlessness to their uh, dialogue while still having some like minor stanks of hey, this is a relationship that is built on we're going to try to stay together for the kid and will they actually fall in love? It's it's all the other, like, trying to hit the standard 90s formulaic romantic comedy beats where they need to break up and they need to have a big moment that makes them think they fall in love that the movie 
falls on its face over and over again. The movie seems to think that his problem, when they break up, the movie seems to think that his problem is that he doesn't believe in signs and that he's all rigid and, you know, objective about shit. His problem is that he's an asshole. Yeah, like, he's a liar. He's, he's a not liar fully and an committed, and he fully yeah. and, he, and he completely refuses to just have a fucking conversation until he waits until the last possible moment when it'll be the most dramatic. And his fucking pregnant wife is like, yeah, inches away from giving birth. Like she's already getting like the pains where people are like, "Oh my god, are you gonna pop right now?" He says when uh, they're breaking up because she's like leaving the parking lot because she's so pissed at him. He says when they're breaking up. I have to drop everything I was going to do because I put a $5 ring on your finger. Wow. Like, it's a great way to make your character irredeemable at the end of your movie. It's a really good fuck you line. And he delivers it well. Like, I do think, like... I genuinely think Matthew Perry is probably an asshole in real life. (laughs) After that line, I'm like, he probably yells at girlfriends that way. It's because he does play, like, exasperated angry. He plays that kind of thing that uh, Michael Ian Black talks about, where in the moment you're looking for an applause line... But there's no audience there, and so you say the worst thing that comes to your mind that'll hurt someone. And the only way to mature, if you're that person, is to realize there is no audience where, yeah, that's a good line potentially in a movie as a fuck you. But at the end of the day, if in, in your real life relationships, you have to mend that. So I think that does work in the sense of like he immediately, you can see on his face, regrets saying it. But he said it in that moment because it was a fuck you line. And I think I think he delivers that well. Where this movie fails, and this is a problem of a ton of fucking 90s movies, where, like, the entire conflict is based on the fact that the male in the relationship is telling huge lies or keeping major secrets that needs to be revealed and resolved. And I don't think I don't feel like they do that as much anymore in movies like But that was everywhere in the 90s. Like, if you were watching a romantic comedy, chances are the primary conflict was going to be that your male lead was keeping a secret from the female lead. And they don't do that anymore. It was so normalized as part of being those movies that you don't notice it. But now it's just like, no one would stand for this. There's no coming back from this. Like... I told a white lie once to my wife and it was like a serious conversation. Like, you need to tell me the truth, even if it's something that I'm not going to be happy about. And it was about nothing. It was like a stupid, like, did you smoke today? And I'm like, no, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, an- it's enough. It's just though. like, it's like, a, it's a, yeah, it's a, it was a panic moment where it's like, you, you know, I just didn't want to have the conversation. I said, no, she goes, no, you need to tell me the truth. Did you smoke? And I'm like, no, she's like, you need to tell me right now. And I'm like, Yes. And she's like, and, and like in that moment, it's like, I don't think I've ever lied to her about anything big or little again, because even even trying to fool about something tiny, you know, it, it, it feels like you're betraying them or don't respect them or something like that. So I don't I I don't think that happens as much in movies anymore. And because it because it, it probably never happened to the extent that 90s romantic comedies uh, thought it did in real life. Uh but yeah, it's bad. Like, even it doesn't even make fucking sense. You can't fool your wife into moving to New York four months early. Like, you can't go, oh, whoops. Oh, like, how are you going to mentally solve this issue later? 
without just being like, holy shit, I know we were going to wait, but I got this job. What do you think? I don't understand what the plan was because they don't give us any real peek into his psyche. Yeah, that's the weird thing about the movie is he seems to be like continually lying to her about all these little things and then these big things. And you're like, I don't believe in you as a couple. What you're saying earlier about the like the, the little white lie versus the big lie thing, like it, once you catch somebody in a lie that you're supposed to trust, it's hard to tell whether that's like a, a a giant crack in the foundation of your relationship or if it's just like, oh, it's just a little, it's a little scrape. Like it's hard to tell at the time because you're like, do you just lie to me all the time? You, is this just like today you're feeling funny? Like what's what's the deal? Yeah, did you just not want to get caught, or um, is, is this just a way that you deal with conflict? Yeah, and I, I don't want to be, so I don't want to be those two white straight dudes that are like, oh, romantic comedies, they're really stupid, right? But like, honestly, the movie forcing itself into the romantic comedy box hurts it again and again, and this is in one of those opportunities where the movie's like, we need to have a big conflict so they, so they can reunite at the end, because if they're just happy the whole time... It's not going to make sense. The movie is kind of inverted in one way. Like, it's inverted in, in superficial ways. Like, they hook up within five minutes of meeting. Well, in movie time. And they get married and, you know. Not even, like, in a realistic way. Because he's just questioning her religious beliefs in a payphone. Yeah. Not like a, they were drunk at a bar type movie. They get married quickly. They have a baby quickly. Like, all that stuff would usually happen at the end of the movie. And so you're like, oh, this is kind of interesting. These, this rom-com is kind of flipped inside out. Actually, the movie is so has to so rigidly adhere to its formula that like instead of just a normal boyfriend-girlfriend breakup at the end, it's an actual full-on divorce. Yeah. And then they get back together. By having them break apart in, in that way... Well, and she lies to him about having an abortion, which feels... It, that feels like they would never do that in a movie nowadays. Yeah, it feels... It's like, not like a serious indie movie, let alone... It, in some weird ways, the like a 90s were so, thing. like... Yeah, in, in some weird ways, like, the 90s were weirdly progressive on, like, women's rights and, like, crazily regressive in other areas to the point that it feels kind of flipped. Like, they never talk about having abortions anymore. And when they do, it feels like you're watching something like You're the Worst, which is, like, this pushing the boundaries show for like basic cable yeah so like obvious child is um one of my favorite movies the past couple years and what's weird about it is that in a lot of ways it's just a rom-com that's compelling it's just a really really well-made rom-com it's one of those things where it's like when dudes talk about not liking rom-coms which i think is like a thing that doesn't exist anymore like i don't think dudes say that anymore um the i hate musical thing still exists because i'm still keeping it alive but uh, the uh, the I hate rom com things. I don't know if that exists outside. Yeah, of Yeah, my wife doesn't like musicals though either. I don't think that's a male or female thing. Yeah, but it's just sort of a t- typical sort of male thing. But uh, I like good rom coms that like I-, I think that they take us on an emotional journey on who how two people unite, and then at the end of the movie, we're happy that they're together. And this movie, by forcing itself into the rom com box and making themselves break up at the end of the second act, I don't want them to get back together i genuinely think alex probably should date someone who you know will just bend over backwards for his career because he doesn't seem to particularly like he doesn't even he, i think at the end i i buy his change though at that but he, he doesn't really make a change though because he was gonna go away anyways and at that point he's not he hasn't compromised the big account has he 
I assume so because he left. He was let. He was leaving anyways to go on a trip, and that that trip was. You know, but that was a path. that was a weekend trip. He gets to Hoover Dam. Like we don't know how much time has passed. It's, we can assume it was like a day or two. I, I, I feel like the maybe it doesn't lay it out explicitly, but I feel like the movie is trying to say that he learned his lesson and Isabel is more important than his job. I, we need. I think we need like not him telling his boss to fuck off, but like we need him being like. I need to be back for this and this, and then he just doesn't go. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to argue with you too much about this because I don't care <laughs> um, about anything. Uh, no, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I get what you're saying. Like, they don't explicitly. I, I, I just, I maybe I've watched too many of these. It's kind of like an implicit understanding with the audience that, well, of course, he's choosing her over anything else going forward. And I think what's interesting. Are you saying rom-coms are like jazz? Yep, it's it's the notes they don't play. It's 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 the lies they don't tell. Um, in the nineties, all of these there were so many of this type of movie, and they all followed the same formula. Like I can think of other Matthew Perry movies that were about him keeping big lies from his significant other, and then telling her at the end, and then you know they have to get back together. A uh, three to tango. Which, if we ever just want to say, hey, what would be a crazily offensive movie to watch that's from the year 2000? I think we should watch Three Tango, which I haven't seen since it came out. I only saw it once and I didn't like it at the time. But it is about Matthew Perry pretending to be gay. And then Nev Campbell falls in love with him as her best friend. And at the end, he has to be like, I'm not actually gay. That's, uh, wow. Yeah, they made, but, but again, I think serving Sarah, I think... In a whole nine yards, doesn't he pl- pretend to play an assassin or something? And then Amanda Peet falls in love with him. Like, he – and this is just Matthew Perry movies. I can think of 10 or 15 other of these, like, Forces of Nature with Ben Affleck and Sandra Bullock. Like, these these movies were everywhere that were, like, based on – that never made that much money. But they made enough, and all of them were based on one of the protagonists keeping a huge secret or lying to the other one. And – it di- I'm not going to lie. It didn't stand out for me watching this movie back in the day that why would you even try to do this just because it was such a part of this genre that while it was frustrating and that you just want to be like, just tell her, be together forever. Uh, it was such a part of it. It'd be like questioning why they're using lasers in a space movie. Like what, what you know, it just is just part of the aesthetic part of the the genre tropes yeah it's a secondary language that you just sort of inherently understand uh, yeah without they did stop doing it though i think they kind of stopped making these movies in general but even even the romantic or like love stories that they tell now their focal point usually isn't about like someone keeping secrets from someone yeah so let's let's talk about one thing i think that um, Let's Salma keep talking Hayek. about this in five different ways. I think Salma Hayek is is pretty uh, great in this movie, and I think that I wish that she had done more rom coms because she is like she. I think you I never saw Frida. I never saw Frida. Hilarious. <laughs> it sounds hilarious. It's so good. Yeah, she had such a funny life, you know. Yeah. Um, Look at that eyebrow. That's nah, crazy. Oh, so I, I think watching this movie, I figured out what Salma Hayek's power is. Um, and that's that she has power cheeks and that's that if she, she, or she raises her cheeks, she has, she's the most adorable person on the planet. If she drops her cheeks, she's incredibly sexy. So she could just like 
manipulate she even in the cheapest movie where they give her the worst dialogue she can manipulate you like in seconds and it's amazing it's amazingly effective even in something like this that has like no subtlety whatsoever no layers which is fine that's the reason when people watch these kind of movies is because it's sort of comfort food like you know what's you know what to anticipate next what do you think about Salma Hayek in this movie I mean like I, I think she's good she definitely plays something much different in that you know she's not I think this may have been the first Salma Hayek movie I saw so I didn't have a frame of reference and I just thought she was kind of like this adorable girl next door person which she is almost decidedly not in most other movies but she does she is adorable in this movie like she you know feels like someone who is passionate and cares and like you you buy that she loves matthew perry there's not a moment where you're like this is two people that are like out of each other's leagues or have no chemistry like she you and she doesn't just – you don't just buy it because the movie's telling you they should be together. You buy it because she, they seem like they have a real relationship. And and Matthew Perry has the same relationship with everyone, uh, you know, in the way that he kind of jokes and says serious stuff. And like I said, I have a soft spot for it. It works for me. But the reason why their relationship feels real is because the Salma Hayek's feels – gives off a sense of warmth and – yeah, I – you know, it's it's it, that's a hard thing to do, and she didn't do it all that often. You know, she w- kicked ass in a lot of movies, or was an action kind of hero, or was the vamp, but never. I I can't really think of another example of just like a regular girl who marry fi- falls in love with a guy who works in business. Yeah, like in Desperado, she's supposed to be like a normal girl, but she gets wrapped up in the sort of uh, romantic action. I, I I can't really think about th- I can't really think of anything else she played this light. Well, she started in soap operas, and that's like where she got her fame in in Mexico. And then I think when she got here, she was like, "I'm a serious actress." And then she had a very strange career where she played real real performances and she had like light flippy floppy roles and she had like side roles that were probably kind of you know kind of sucked to take and she also had like roles in 30 rock where she's incredibly funny and she sort of makes fun of her own persona and, and that's one way that this movie oh yeah out. i forgot that now she's like married to adam sandler in all of his movies yeah it's a weird that's a weird thing because she's that's, that's so just much fail- better than that <laughs> That's just our normal, like, failing any any woman who's over 40 in Hollywood. Well, Maria Bello is also in a few of those movies, right? I think she plays, yeah. like, Kevin James's wife in, in the Girl I mean, I've never seen any of them. I was just kind of looking up and like, what has she been in? Everly uh, is good. I never I never saw that one. You should watch Everly. She's Sec- good in Dogma. She is good in Dogma. Um, she's really good in Everly. You should, you should watch that. It's just, like, a fun, kick-ass f- uh, female empowerment action movie. Um, and she's particularly great in it. Oh, uh, yeah, let's wrap this baby up. Uh, so my straight thoughts are, uh, I think this movie makes a very convincing case for Las Vegas being a hellhole. Um, <laughs> it, it definitely does not show the fun parts. The nightclub seems terrible. I know it probably seems very so cool. It's so chintzy. Ni- yeah, by 90s standard, I'm sure it was really cool. But it feels terrible. The sub- The suburban nightmare they're in is like the 
it feels like it should be in a Joe Dante movie that all the houses look the same and that's supposed to be an underlying uh, example of how suburbia is terrible and the rest is just kind of like dusty desert that is not pretty um I I think maybe that movie is maybe the movie is trying to get you to side with Matthew Perry just on the way that they portray Las Vegas. Like, yeah, get the fuck out of here. Yeah, definitely leave because uh, the movie doesn't do a very good job. It makes Mexico look pretty in the opening scene, but it doesn't yeah. really do a good job of making Las Vegas look pretty. Like her photographs are pretty. Uh, one of the other biggest uh, laughs from this movie for me was the. Um, the champagne cork, which should not have been as funny as it was when they're about to have marital sex after they decide to get married. And um, he pops the champagne up looking at her dressed all sexy. And, um, you know, it's it, to to ruin all the subtlety. It looks like he's coming out of his penis, but it's champagne. Um <laughs> The movie should have said that because the movie lacks subtlety <laughs> for the rest of its run. So Yeah, but um, Matthew Perry sells it really well in a way that I know that I've seen that joke a hundred times. And for some reason, it made me laugh still. So I think it'd be, he can be a pretty good comedic actor. Uh, and to kind of circle back to what we talked about at the beginning, this movie has a half-hearted joke about Hillary Clinton not changing her name to bill clinton because at the time she was hillary rodham for a while when she was the um wife of uh bill clinton when he was the governor and then eventually changed it apparently there was a lot of talk about that hurting him and his chances for re-election and so she eventually became hillary rodham clinton and uh selma hayek's best friend talks about are you gonna do a hillary rodham and do something like that or are you just gonna you know change your name like you're supposed to and that was a very painful thing to hear the day after this fucking election. Yeah. It's it's like barely a joke and it would never – it's just the day after Hillary Clinton loses to a monster to have like this random movie from the 90s make a joke about her not changing her last name was like a very weird like – it's like the fates aligned just to uh, break through. Because the thing is, this would have been a perfect movie to watch the day after the election because it's so flippy floppy and so like insubstantial. And it's 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 like lighthearted the whole time. There's like it reaches like one emotional nadir point where I was like, I do not like Matthew Perry anymore. And the movie didn't quite recover from that. But other than that, it's pretty much just like a... Hey, uh, hope does exist in the world and sometimes good things happen type of movie. And I, I don't know, dude, like that, that I'm, I didn't even hear that line. And maybe it was cause I was on an airplane. So like I wasn't hearing every single line, but well, you were flying it. Yeah. I was flying the plane. Well, yeah. They let me not watch, uh, interstellar on, thank you. Uh, on the That's plane a callback. Everyone. We did it <laughs> <laughs> on our, on our final episode ever. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's going to be everyone's final episode ever. Yeah, exactly. Um, sort of like on a plane, it felt like it was a good like flippy floppy thing to like bring me a little bit of comfort in a time where I was like, I am not watching The Lobster on this flight. I'm not watching anything that might emotionally wreck me. And it didn't emotionally wreck me or particularly bring me up, though. Like, it, it, yeah, this would have been a good hung. hung. That's what I, I was planning to watch it during the day. I was going to be a little bit hungover. And I was going to throw this on. And that is like, that is to this still the perfect, perfect time to watch this movie. Yeah. It's supposed to be sort of like flat emotionally. But like what, what rom-coms do you like that you aren't sure? What other rom-coms do you like that you aren't sure if they hold up? 
Um, I would say a movie called Head Over Heels, which I was always very surprised to end up liking with Freddie Prince Jr. and uh, Monica something who looks exactly like Julia Roberts but never really took off. Monica Potter, I think. Um, That's a name. Yep, they're all names. I, what were we even talking about? What other what other rom-coms do you like? Oh, yeah, so I remember liking Head Over Heels. I mean, there were a lot of them that I always remember finding pleasant. I'm sure if I went through a list, I could think of like, you know, there's, there's a lot of substantial, like, I don't really think of, you know, I call this the second tier of like cookie cutter Hollywood rom-coms. Like, Jerry Maguire is fucking great, but it's not this, you know, it's something... It's romantic, it's a comedy, but it doesn't feel like this. Also, this movie is almost two hours, which is unforgivable. Yes. It feels Uh, like two hours. There's, like, a lot of just, like, some crazy shit's happening right now, when in reality it could have just been a hangout movie, and it would have worked a lot better. Um, I mean, almost no movie should be two hours. Yeah. Let alone this. (laughs) Most movies should hover between 80 and 100 minutes. Yeah. Like I don't think most I don't think most movies deserve uh, to be over two hours. Yeah, it's particularly as a huh wasps and uh, uh, Hispanic Catholics might not get along all the time. Um, but yeah, so I uh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I really like Obvious Child, which is great. But oh, I thought we were talking about know, like of a specific yeah, yeah, era. Yeah, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Okay. But uh, one that I'm not sure about is Two Weeks Notice with Sandra Bullock. I, I never liked, saw it. I liked that movie uh, a lot growing up. Like, uh, I found it really charming and sweet, and I like Hugh Grant a lot. And it's just like a easy watching, like exactly what a rom com should be type movie. And uh, I'm curious if it holds up at all. It it definitely won't have uh, racist issues, I imagine. Uh, I bet but, it has gay panic. Um, I, it almost definitely has a gay <laughs> panic joke. There are so- two men in the movie, so. <laughs> So I looked up a list, and I'll tell you all of these that I like. Uh, this is just a random list. Uh, I like 10 Things I Hate About You. I like She's All That. I like You've Got Mail. Uh, I like Notting Hill. Um, I like You've Got Mail. I've got, I like Sleepless in Seattle. Um, so, I, I mean, there's actually – there's actually – there's I mean, if you count stuff like Four Weddings and a Funeral, I think you can make the case for The Wedding Singer. I'm just kind of looking at like – there's actually probably a lot that I like um, depending on – your definition and there's some that are not very good like there's that one with chris o'donnell where he something wedding related that's terrible the bachelor i think it's called um there's like drive me crazy runaway bride which i didn't care for i mean picture perfect with jennifer like all basically every other movie they tried to make a romantic comedy out of with a friends cast member is terrible um, in this in this time frame, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of bad ones, but there's definitely some good ones. Yep, and um, and this is an okay one. <laughs> yeah, this one's sir, sir, it doesn't offend me. It's serviceable. Yeah, um, we, well, we'll probably check out more though, because I mean, there's a lot of those that I listed, and I've never seen two weeks notice. That could be interesting. Yeah, um, we'll, we, should, we'll, we should have a whole rom com month. Maybe that'll be what February is. Yeah, I mean, we don't want to only talk about him after a dictator has been risen to power in our country. <laughs> Yeah, it's probably going to sour our views a little bit. I might have found this more charming and funny. I didn't really find it funny, um, except for that the champagne cork moment. Like, maybe one more thing. And the Jesus Christ thing. Those the are the Jesus two Christ laugh thing, out loud yeah. yeah. moments. The one I, did, I specifically uh, hated was there's a scene where he 
there's some scene in the desert where he gets brought out there, which is like total cutting floor sh- material. Um, I think they couldn't cut it because uh, Matthew Perry is walking around with the cactus pricks in his back for... Oh, yeah. See, that's such a weird scene because they show what happens when they go out there, which is them shooting rattlesnakes. And then he comes back with a different problem. Yeah, it's a weird it's a weird thing. I think they were trying to trim down that scene. Um, maybe there's yeah. more because I think they wanted to edit that scene out. But once they they shot the takes of Matthew Perry back at the house with all the pr- the, the uh, prickles in his back and stuff. Yeah, because then later on, he's like using the donut. So I, it probably was too central to have him get cacti'd. Yeah, so the, that scene like could have been cut, and there's a scene where he's he's being like dragged in, um, and he's like he's like they got him drunk, and he basically does like a Ricky Ricardo thing. That's and, kind of funny, and I, I hated that like a lot. Yeah, I, I don't think I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I said it because I'm like, oh yeah, I remember him doing that, and then. Uh, yeah, no, it's not very good. Yeah, but it's just a little. That's my you're, that's you're my like... secret. I I try to keep that secret from you that I didn't really like it, and I just wanted to tell you what you wanted to hear, uh, because we're at war. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I with think ourselves, we, we should we should unite because if we don't stick together, uh, yeah. So we'll wrap it up. It's fine. Don't seek it out. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So next, <laughs> whatever. Fuck this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so All the chemistry left uh, left on the Tuesday. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that's the problem. We're recording uh, it on an off yeah. day. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, just a little weird. Yeah. So next <laughs> next week, guys, we're talking to Elizabeth Lundberg about Super Mario Brothers, which I imagine will be uh fucking crazy to watch. Not just because. It's Super Mario Brothers, which is a crazy movie, but Donald Trump was constantly compared to Dennis Hopper in that movie. Uh, I don't even fucking know what that's going to be like, but that's what we're watching next. That would have um, been more fun in... Uh, two uh, weeks ago. Yeah, that would have been more uh, fun then. Yeah, uh, but thankfully, Elizabeth Lundberg is awesome. I'm so excited for her to join us. So, uh, sh- yeah, she'll she'll help us get through this, yeah. I guess. And then we're doing Rescuers Down Under with Tom Peeler. Yep, who very, is very also awesome. All these people that we've been conversing with as we try to make sense of our brave new world. Yep, yep, yep. And uh, yeah, so uh, that is how the fools, they rush on in. Yeah, and final note, guys, just, you know, be good to each other. Uh, tell people that you love them, that you care about. Um, you know, we're going to need a lot I of people you. together. I love you too, bud. Um, I'm glad we have this outlet, and I am excited to uh, hopefully be able to announce something uh, on our next episode that is a way that we can hopefully do some good in this world right yep. now. We're still figuring out details, obviously, but uh, yeah, we're, we're working on something, maybe. Yeah, so good night, everyone. Hug your kids. Hug your kids, because they might H- not hug be your, here tomorrow. H- oh, wait, let me check. Hug your family. <laughs> the whole thing. Yeah, hug all of them. The dogs, yeah. a couch you like. <laughs> you know your couch family. Yeah, hug I already hit. I stopped the, recording. Hug the ottoman. <laughs> I didn't. Now, now I'm actually stopping.
Hey folks, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. If you want to get in touch with us, please reach out to us at either our website, wltwpodcast.com, or our Facebook group, facebook.com backslash we love to watch. And uh, yeah, reach out to us, give us some feedback, give us some support, uh, suggest movies for the show, all that. We are also available on SoundCloud, TuneIn, Stitcher, and iTunes. Thanks for listening.